Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13. Almost to the end. Let us read uh, the first 14 verses of this chapter. I was hoping to, to finish this up today, but I realized that would be impossible. So let us look at the first half. On that day, that is on the day of dedication of the wall, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. And while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the, the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse uh, Selemiah, the priest of Zadok, the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you so much that the words that, that we have read today are good, are your words. They're good news. And Lord, I pray this morning that I would, in my frailty, not get in the way. The Lord, that you would speak your word to us uh, in the power of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would... Um, not only inform us and teach us and instruct us, but that you would train us, that your grace would train us, Lord, to forsake our sins and to live into righteousness. We thank you, God, and pray these things in your name. Amen. 
Well, if you've been in the Presbyterian Church for very much of your life, or a Reformed Church, you have heard people say the church is always in need of reformation. And when I say reformation, I don't just mean in the 1500s and the 1600s, the reformation that took place there, but I'm talking about even in our own lives today, we need God's work of reformation. Uh, we definitely see that in Nehemiah 13. We only read half of the chapter, um, but uh, even in what we read, we see that God's people were in need of reform. Um, not only is it needed in the Old Testament, the New Testament, but even today. And so I want us just to begin by just jumping right into the text and looking at verse 1. And uh, what we'll see here is the sins of the past of, of Israel. And, and, and as I said before, I read the word. This is on the day of dedication of the wall. As a matter of fact, I was sort of grappling with, do I take chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, and should have I preached it last week when I preached the sermon or do it this week? Well, it's sort of one of those transition passages that fit both places. And so, you know, wherever I put it, 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 it would fit, I guess. And so we see here, it says, on that day, on the day that, that the dedication of the walls was made, the people read from the book of Moses, in, um, or the book of Moses was read in the hearing of the people. Now, most likely they were reading from Deuteronomy 23, uh, based on what is said here, or maybe Numbers 22, but Deuteronomy 23, 3, um, the, they are told that there are certain people who should never, ever, 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 ever enter the house of God. Now, lest you think I'm being emphatic, that's sort of what it's like in the Hebrew. It's that kind of emphasis. This should never, ever, ever, ever happen. And as I said, um, these people are named. And their names are the Ammonites and the Moabites. Uh, the account that is referred to, made reference here, is from Numbers 22. And the Israelites are making their way from Egypt to Canaan. And along the way, they engage the Ammonites and the Moabites. But rather than being greeted and assisted on their way, those nations resisted Israel. And not only did they oppose them, but they even hired a gun uh, to come against Israel. Sort of had a hired gun. And what, what I mean by that is they hired a prophet, Balaam, who would come and curse God's people. Now, kids, you've heard of Balaam. You may not recognize the name. But do you remember hearing in Sunday school about Balaam's donkey and how Balaam's donkey talked to him? I mean, that really happened. And, uh, but that's, that's the guy that we're talking about here. And he was hired to come and to curse God's people. But we see here uh, in, our, in our text that God turns that curse that was meant for Israel and he now turns that curse upon the Ammonites and the Moabites to the very day of Nehemiah 13. Because what Balaam ended up doing, God dealt with him in such a way that instead of cursing God's people, he actually blessed them. And then the nations that hired him were actually cursed of God. And when God's people make this discovery, in verse 3, we see, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. 
Now, as we've talked about in the past, this is not racial segregation, okay? This is spiritual segregation. This is a sense of not yoking yourself with, uh, with uh, light and, and darkness with uh, Satan or with God. It's a sense that we must only be united in Jesus Christ. And because the Ammonites and the Moabites had spiritually opposed the people of God for that, a curse of separation was pronounced upon them at that time. But what we see here is, is that God is constantly separating the clean from the unclean, the holy from the unholy. Now, there's no human being that is more holy than another human being in and of ourselves, right? But what is being addressed here is, is that who can come into the presence of God? Who can come into the temple of God? Who can serve in his presence? And God says the Ammonites and the Moabites are not allowed in my presence. And at that point in history, they were not allowed to come in. So we see the people of God reforming as they hear the word of God and they obey the word of God. So that's sort of the sins uh, that, that has happened in the past. But then... We see then Nehemiah beginning to address the sins that were actually going on in Israel's time in Nehemiah 3. Um, and let me just uh, maybe give you a little bit of context, if I could, uh, especially if you've not been with us the whole time in Nehemiah. Nehemiah has been governor of Judah for 12 years. We see that in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 14. Um, but all the building projects and most of the significant events that had taken place really occurred in that first year of Nehemiah's office. So there's debate amongst commentators as to whether Nehemiah was in Jerusalem the whole time of those 12 years or whether part of that time he was away. But we do know from verse 6 that, you know, during this time, Nehemiah had returned to Persia, to Susa, uh, to the service of the king. Uh, he wasn't even in Jerusalem when those things that we read in verses 4 through uh, 14 had actually taken place. Uh, if you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah comes to the king and he asks the king, hey, can I, I'm, I'm your cupbearer, can I take time off to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the wall? And the king asks in Nehemiah 2, 6, he goes, how long will you be gone and when will you return? And they evidently came up with a date. And that date had come. And so Nehemiah had returned back to the service of the king. And, and that's why we read in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 2, how Nehemiah had set Hananiah and Hananiah in charge of Jerusalem, thus leaving him free to return to his duties before the, the king. Of course, he, he stuck around for the dedication of the wall, and then he left. And while Nehemiah is away, Eliashib, who is the priest, if not the high priest at the moment, um, who was also one who had worked with Nehemiah on a number of things, um, he... How do I want to say this? He knew better, and yet he chose to allow something that God had for, forbidden. Eliashib was functioning really as a false priest, 
as a compromised priest, as one who was not faithful to keep God's word. And what he was doing was he was showing favoritism to a local politician for his own personal advantage and gain. And what we see has happened in verses 4 and 5 is Eliashib has affiliated himself with Tobiah. Now, if you hear that name Tobiah, that should really ring a bell if you've been with us through Nehemiah. His name comes up over and over and over and over again. He's part of what we have sort of uh, called the unholy trinity. Uh, Sambalat, uh, Gershom, and Tobiah were the three men who were constantly opposing the rebuilding of the wall. Sometimes through jeering and making fun of Israel, sometimes through threats of attack, even to the point where the Israelites had to work with a trowel in one hand and a weapon in another. Uh, there were times that where they were seeking to usurp uh, the authority of Nehemiah. There was even one time where they plotted to try to get Nehemiah to come to an isolated place so that they could kill him. And so he was not a good man. He was a, a definitely an old enemy of Nehemiah. Uh, well, one thing that we do learn about Tobiah is he is of mixed descent, both Jew and Gentile. His name is actually Jewish and means good is the Lord, but he definitely doesn't live up to his name. He is actually quite the opposite of that. And it's interesting that as you look throughout the book of Nehemiah, Tobiah is sometimes just called Tobiah. Sometimes he's called uh, Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, like we see in chapter 2, verse 19. And sometimes he's just called Tobiah the Ammonite, uh, chapter 4, verse 3. Um, and this is the same Tobiah that has a lot in common with Balaam. Uh, not only was he opposing the rebuilding of the wall, as I said, he taunted Israel and cursed them um, in order to stop the work. And then in chapter 6, uh, verse 17 and following, we see that the nobles of Judah are writing letters to Tobiah after the wall is completed, and Tobiah is writing letters back to them because they were bound by an oath to Tobiah. Uh, Era uh, was the head of a family that had returned from exile uh, with Zerubbabel, and Tobiah married Era's granddaughter. And so Tobiah has connections in Jerusalem. And most likely it was this connection which allowed him to be able to work his way not only into the holy city of God, but into the very temple of God itself. This Tobiah who opposed Nehemiah's ministry, this Tobiah was now in the temple. He had a guest house in the storehouse in the courts of God. Now, it's, it's hard not to overstate how offensive this was. You know, for us, it, it may not feel like so, but, but uh, you can imagine how personally offensive this was for Nehemiah. And it wasn't just the fact that Nehemiah and Tobiah had personality conflicts. Tobiah truly was an enemy of God. He was uh, like a weasel. Um, I, I, was, I heard somebody describe it this way. They said... He really was like Gollum, you know, in the Lord of the Rings. You know, he just kept showing up. You never knew when, but that slimy guy would always be there whenever you turned around. And that was Tobiah. He was that kind of person. And so when Nehemiah left to return to serve the king of Persia, 
you know, Israel was really at the spiritual peak. Uh, but now Nehemiah returns to find that not only are the Ammonites and the Moabites granted access to the outer courts, but Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, was a guest in the temple of God, and he was allowed in there by the priest, Elisha. Well, if you're trying to think about, I was trying to think about how offensive that would be, and about the best illustration I could come up with was, men, that would be like you returning home from a trip only to find another man in your bedroom with your wife. That's the kind of offensive that it was, an offense that it was in the sight of God. It was a serious sin, a very grievous sin, appalling, unholy, unrighteous. And we read in verse 5 of Nehemiah 13 that Tobiah has a large chamber. You know, if you want to put that in today's language, he had the penthouse within God's house, right? He had the, the big, nice room. And, and in order for Eliashib to move in, I don't know if you thought about this, but in order for him to live in that chamber, then he must move all the belongings of God out of that chamber. You see, that was the place where the grain offering was stored, where the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes and the grain and wine and oil that were given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers. All those things were there. And so, in essence, God was sort of kicked out of his house, in a sense, so an unclean man who taunts Israel and opposes God's work could move in. The enemy of God makes his way not only into Jerusalem, the holy city, but into the temple of God, and it is the priest who lets him in. Well, here, Israel, profaning the house of God, breaks the rules of God, playing lightly with the holiness of God. Imagine how appalled Nehemiah must have been when he returned to Jerusalem. Now, how do you think Nehemiah should respond? I mean, as we've seen Nehemiah, he has proven himself to be a righteous man. He wasn't perfect. I'm not saying he never sinned, never made mistakes. We know that's not tr true. But, but he was a righteous man. And how ought a righteous man respond? Well, look at verse 8. Nehemiah said, And I was very angry. Not just angry, kids, but very angry uh, at the situation. Uh, Nehemiah became indignant with righteous anger. As a matter of fact, uh, he begins to toss Tobiah's stuff out of the chamber, we see in verse 8. Um, it's, it's sort of like that scene you've seen a million times on TV shows or movies or whatever, where you have the husband who's standing in the street, right? And, uh, I don't, and the camera angle could be from the bottom looking up or from the top looking down. It, it shows show it different ways. But the husband's standing in the street and the wife is in an upstairs window. And what she's doing, she's throwing his stuff out of the house because they've had a fight. That's sort of what we see with, with Nehemiah and Tobiah. Uh, the language here actually of throwing is quite forceful, if not violent. It's an aggressive, like, purge this evil that is, that is happening here. And, and why is Nehemiah so red hot? Is it because that he's personally offended by Tobiah? No, the reason why he is is because the place that Tobiah occupies has been holy 
set apart by the Lord for a specific purpose. And Tobiah, once again, the enemy of God, is desecrating uh, God's holy space. Not only have the rules of God been broken, but the righteousness of God has been downplayed and Nehemiah can't tolerate such sin. You see, no man should live in there, but if any man was, it ought not to be Tobiah. He was that wicked of a man. Well, it gets worse. Okay, look down at verse 10. We see that um, it's, it's not just the sin of two individuals, but actually the whole covenant community is sinning in essence. The people were neglecting those who were serving in the temple. And what's so bad is, if you look back just a couple of chapters, uh, you'll see uh, how grievous this sin is. Look back at chapter 9, verse 38. Uh, let me just say this while you're turning there. In chapter 8, the people of God heard the word of God. And they listened to it for prolonged periods of time. And they just listened as the word of God was read for hours and hours and hours. And there were a number of times where they had that privilege to hear the word of God read. Kids, they didn't have a Bible of their own. You know, this is sort of like kids when you ask me, Pastor Rick, when you were little, what kind of PC did you have? What kind of computer did you have? And I said, we didn't have personal computers when I was little. Okay, the Israelites would say the same thing. We didn't have our own Bible. There was the scroll and the priest would read or the scribes would read the word and we would listen to the word. And so that's what they were doing. They were listening and taking in the word and and they had uh seen their sin and they had repented of their sin and asked the lord to forgive them and then they committed to obey the law of the lord as a matter of fact chapter 9 verse 38 we see that they made a covenant with god right uh, and and even stating that they would be cursed if they did not obey god chapter 10 verse 29 and, and it wasn't enough for the Israelites to say, we'll obey, they didn't mean that and say that in a specific sense. But if you look over at chapter 10, beginning with verse 30, and looking down through the end of the chapter, you'll see that the people listed specific ways that they would obey, right? First of all, in verse 30, they promised not to intermarry with the other nations. Well, at the end of Nehemiah 13, we'll see that that's exactly what they did. Uh, in... in uh, in verse 31, they said that we promise to keep the Sabbath. Even if the vendors show up on our doorsteps, we will not buy from them. Well, in, in verse 15 of, of Nehemiah 13, we see that they are breaking the Sabbath and purchasing things on the Sabbath. And then in verses 32 through 39, we see that the people of God promise to maintain the house of God and those who serve there. As a matter of fact, look at verse 39. Let me just read it. It says, For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of God. You see, they promised, they coveted, made a covenant with God that they would keep this promise, and if they don't, let curses come upon them. And, and while the people were zealous to obey God, 
and sought reform, when we get to Nehemiah 13, we see the people neglecting the temple in verses 10 through 14. We see them trading on the Sabbath, verses 15 through 22, and marrying foreign wives in verses 23 through 31. You see, there is a slackness in following hard after the principles of God's word. There's a slackness in following hard after the principles and the command of God's word. And Eliashib, the priest, and, and there's some who think he was the high priest at the time, was favoring Tobiah, a secular politician, and, and, and in doing so, he was neglecting the servants of the Lord who ministered before God. So much so that these servants, the singers, the Levites, others, had to return to their hometown, to their fields, to work in the fields, to earn a living because they were not getting the supply of bread and food that was due them for the work that they were doing. And so they left the holy for the common. Now, wow, in Nehemiah, uh, or yeah, in uh, verse 13, Nehemiah asks an interesting question. He says, why is the house of God forsaken? It's a very penetrating question. Um, not only for Nehemiah's day, but maybe even for, for our day as well. Why is the work of God sometimes neglected by the people of God? Well, the answer is, is that sometimes the world offers us a better deal. There's so many things in life to keep us busy. So many things we need that need to be done. The world offers so many things that, that just seem to be more appealing than, than serving God. And as the old hymn says, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that's what's happening in Nehemiah's day. And so Nehemiah jumps in a lot like a lifeguard on a rescue mission, and he will not be deterred. He is going after God's people. And so you look at Nehemiah and you think, wow, this guy is like forceful. He's coming after uh, the leaders of Israel and, and, and calling them to repentance and to obedience to God's word. He's a fearless leader who calls Israel to not only repentance, but faith and action to correct the disobedience and the sin that they have committed against God. Now, how does Israel respond when Nehemiah comes after them to call them to repentance? Well, we, if you look in verse 12, it says, Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. They did exactly what they should do. They, they, they forsook their sin and they corrected what they had done wrong and, and they walked in obedience to the Lord. And we see in verse 13 that Nehemiah once again appoints faithful men to make sure that the temple is not neglected nor its servants. It, it's a day of cleaning house, right? Of, of, of uh, sin is swept out and, and righteousness returns to the house of the Lord. Now, what does repentance look like? Well, it looks a lot like this. The fruit of repentance is seen in what they do. Uh, repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, 
Repentance isn't just saying, you know, I wish I haven't sinned. Actually, repentance is a change of direction in the way that we live. It's saying, I'm moving this direction, but I'm now going to walk this direction. And while it's good to see God's people turn once again to God, Ezra and the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, as we read those, and as we've been in those for a number of months, we have seen this up and down by God's people over and over and over. Sometimes the life of God's people seems like a broken record. You know, kids, you probably don't even know what a record is, okay? You have to have your parents go home and show you, right? But it's this big disc about like this, and you put a needle on it, and it plays uh, uh, the song. Or it, it, it could be a talking rate record, I guess, as well. But typically it's music and it plays a song. But sometimes those records would get worn and it, the needle would get stuck in one track and it would keep repeating the, a, a part of the song over and over and over and over. And you'd have to go and, and move the record needle in order for it to get to go on with the song. And, and sometimes the Christian... Life of God's people seems like a broken record. That it's, it's not only true for the saints back then, but even for us today. It's like playing the same track over and over and over. If you can imagine playing your MP3 or whatever form of song you have, and it gets stuck on the same place. It just happens over and over and over again. That can be what our life can look like. And that's why we need the final point of our sermon that is remembering God's goodness and how he always reforms his church. God always reforms his church. Now, what do we have in common with the saints of Nehemiah 13? Well, we have a lot of things in common, but uh, one of the things that is the same is, is that the law or the word of God has a way of unmasking and exposing our sin, um, just as it always has. It reminds us of our past sins. It reminds us of our present sins. But it shows the hearts of Israel whose hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. When we sing that hymn, I'm guessing there's not a person in this room that, that cannot relate to that, those lyrics. It is that way in our own hearts. And it reminds us of how much we need God's grace. And this leads us to another thing that we have in common. And, and what, that is what we ultimately need, and that is a Savior. In this story, the deliverer is Nehemiah. Right? He leaves for a while, but he comes back again to bring reform to the church. And at this point in history, Nehemiah is the, the hero that God has raised up in those days, not only in what he does, but also in what he prays. Look at verse 14. He prays a prayer. There's actually three times that Nehemiah prays in this chapter. This is the first. He goes, Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Now, look at that prayer. Look at that. I mean, I think that many of us would struggle with that prayer. I mean, how many times do you pray, God, don't forget the good things that I've done, and remember me on payday, right? I mean, is that typically how you guys pray? If it is, maybe we need to talk after the worship service, okay? But, you know, we don't pray that way. 
We understand, you know, that that's not the way to do it. And even commentators struggle with this prayer uh, a bit. And, and it leads us to ask the question, is this a prayer of self-righteousness and self-applauding? Is Nehemiah promoting himself, saying, hey, look what I've done? Is Nehemiah really saying, God, look at me and how righteous I am and reward me for what I've done? Well, his, if you look at Nehemiah's character, like I said, throughout this book, you would say, no, Nehemiah is far better than this. And notice that the prayer asks God not only to remember Nehemiah's good deeds, but their purpose and their effect. You see, what Nehemiah is really after is not a reward for himself, but a reformation in the hearts of God's people. You know, what he's saying is, God, those things that I've done, you know, as a tool of yours to bring about reformation in the hearts of the people, may they continue. May you continue to reform your church. He wants God's people to follow hard after the principles of God's word, following through on their vows to remember the holiness of God, to remember the holiness of his temple, and to elevate God above all things. What Nehemiah wanted was for God's people, for the priest and the people who followed the priest, for them to be like Nehemiah that viewed sin as as heinous as it really is, and to see, uh, uh, and he refers to this, um, I lost the, the, the verse, but when Nehemiah comes back and sees Tobiah, uh, he says, he talks about this evil that Eliashib has done. That's how he views these acts as evil. And so Israel, like us, had a terrible problem with remembering. And sometimes it's hard to remember, and other times we, we don't want to remember. Sometimes we read the Word of God, and rather than it being a delight to our soul, it becomes an inconvenient truth. We don't like what we're faced with in God's Word, and, and we're like, Lord, I don't want to do that. Israel had a problem of remembering and obeying rather than always reforming. We might say they were always, well, they weren't always, but they were sometimes deforming and sometimes reforming, right? They sort of flip-flop back and forth. And as Nehemiah releases that God's people often, uh, realizes that God's people often forget, he prays to God who never does forget, and he prays that the Lord would always remember. Now, could you imagine if you had a friend uh, who never forgets, who always remembers every promise that they had made and never even once broke those promises? That's who our God is. He is a God who keeps covenant with us. One who uh, would abide in Hesed, where God's loving kindness, His covenant faithfulness, His steadfast love. That's what the Lord shows to us as his people. And Nehemiah prays to a God who always keeps the covenant. A God who is a perfect rememberer. A God who always keeps his word. He is faithful even when we are not. Now, for us, we struggle though with that broken record thing, right? We, we wonder how long we will, will we still walk in the same sin-stained trail 
that Israel did of reforming and deforming and deforming and reforming. We see our lives as this big up and down and up and down and up and down. And we come to the end of Nehemiah and the end of the Old Testament, you know, and, and in one sense, there's, we, we feel a sense of lacking, a sense of things are not as they ought to be. But that's because it is to direct us to the waiting Savior. To not to our broken record, but to the song of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The virtue of the one who far exceeds that of Nehemiah, whose rage against sin is even greater than Nehemiah. And Jesus comes as the righteous keeper of the law. And like Nehemiah, Jesus comes to the temple. And what do you see? Well, if you look at Matthew 21, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 21, uh, what do we see? But when Christ comes to the temple, he cleanses the temple like Nehemiah did in Tobiah's day where he kicked him out. There was, there was a lot of similarities. There was, uh, there was uncleanness uh, in the holy space where God should abide and where God should be there with his people. The money changers were there to make money and a profit off of the people. And, and, and like Nehemiah, Jesus comes in and he starts throwing the furniture around. He starts turning over tables and he drives out the money changers because he is the Lord of the temple. It's true that the church is always reforming because we're not there yet. But Jesus is perfect in His holiness, perfect in His righteousness, even perfectly right in His anger that He displayed towards the money changers. And He's, our, he's the Lord not only of the Word and the temple, but of the cross as well. And what Israel needed in order to end this broken cycle, this broken record syndrome that's going on, is they needed a Savior who would come once for all and wipe away their sin, that would fix their broken record. And all that the law demands, the gospel freely gives. Because God remembers His people and God remembers His promise, His Hesed love. So what do we have in common with the people of Nehemiah 13? A need for Jesus. And if, if He has you, beloved, if He has called you to be His child, then your life is not a broken record. In fact, it's, it's not a constant rise and fall like the Israelites. You know, and you may say, Pastor Rick, I don't think you know me very well. I think you think more highly of me than you ought. I struggle a lot, and, and I understand that. And I'm not saying you don't struggle with sin and you don't give in to temptation at times and stuff. But, you know, where we want to look at ourselves as a yo-yo, I, um, I think one of the best illustrations I've heard to describe what sanctification is like for a believer is that, that we're really not like a yo-yo, but we're like a man walking up a set of stairs that is that is doing a yo-yo. And so while, yes, we feel like we're going up and down and up and down and, and deforming and reforming and all of that, what God is doing is, is He's taking us in an upward trajectory towards holiness and godliness. And so by His grace, He doesn't leave us to our own devices. In fact, the very idea of the church always reforming 
means that we remain uh, not, excuse me, it, it does not mean that we remain in a static position in our personal or our corporate growth. But actually God is conforming us to the image of His Son. He is growing the fruit of the Spirit in us. And some of us may get very frustrated because we are not where we think we need to be spiritually. But, you know, the other side of it is we can be overwhelmed by God's grace that we are not today where we once were. We oftentimes forget that. We rarely look back to see where we were and where the Lord has brought us. But the church is reforming because God is always reforming His bride. As Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. If Nehemiah teaches us about the people of God, even more so it teaches us about the God of these people. And, and that those of us who desperately need a Savior were given one in Jesus Christ. If we come to Him by faith and we trust Him. And what they look forward to, we now look back upon. And I know, brothers and sisters, you could be here today and it could be so frustrating that we are not yet what we will one day be. And that we were that we were that we are always in need of greater conformity. I get that. I understand we need to be more like the Son of God. I understand that we do so by the Word of God. But I want to encourage you this morning. Please do not fix your eyes on that which is frustrating. But rather on who you are in Christ. Fix your eyes on what God has done and what He is doing and what He promises that He will bring about in the future. The hope that you have. Because that is truly what makes you beautiful. And that's what makes the church beautiful. He has promised that through His Word and the sacraments and prayer that He will continue to reform His church. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and silently reflect upon the word preached this morning and let us respond silently to the Lord appropriately. you Lord Jesus for loving for loving your bride so much that you continually reform her you change her you make her over into your image and we thank you God so much that, that we as your people are part of that and we pray Lord that you would continue to bring people into your fold to know you and to rejoice and to know your grace. Oh Lord, please help us this week. 
We know that the evil one uh, is there, and he is the accuser, and he is the condemner. He is the deceiver. He is there, Lord, to, to get our eyes off of you and who we are in Christ and to think of ourselves in a way that does not convey reality. He is there to discourage us. But Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon you. Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon what you have done and what you are continuing to do. And the sureness of your promise that these things will happen. Not just that they might happen. It's probably a good possibility they might happen. But they will happen. And Lord, let us see the surety of these things. The fact that they are definite realities. And let us rejoice in that. Pursuing and seeking you. Lord, work in us to delight in who you are and what you're doing. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen.